Hello, everyone. We've got a very special episode this week on the meaning of health. Uh, we're at the RAIN study, uh, but I just wanted to give you a quick heads up that there is a bit of background noise because we did go to their offices and it's a functioning office, so there's people closing doors and there's a bit of activity around there. Um, so just if you hear any noises in the background, that's all it is. Uh, but I'll let you carry on and enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of The Meaning of Health. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Craig. And my name's Courtney. And we're here today with a couple of very special guests. It's very exciting. And so we have Agli Buckley, is that how you say your surname? Yeah, that, that's well, fine. Uh, <laughs> Aggie, Aggie Berkeley. Aggie Berkeley. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting the uh, accent all wrong. <laughs> no, uh, it's Aggie Berkeley. Berkeley, yeah. Yep. And we have Dr. Juliana Zapatero. Yep, great. Excellent. <laughs> all right. Um, so we'll get you guys just to uh, let us know what your title is and what your role is with the RAIN project, the RAIN study. Yeah. So I'm Aggie Berkeley and I'm the operations manager at the RAIN study. I look after the finances and the HR and support researchers with any um, budget developments, that kind of thing. Yep. And I'm Juliana. I'm the scientific officer of the RAIN study. I'm an early career researcher. I have some um, a role as a postdoc in the RAIN study as well. But as a scientific officer, my main role is to help researchers um, navigate our system. Um, and you know, access data and, and complete the projects that they want using the RAIN study resources. Excellent. All right. So um, one of the main reasons we're here is because we know we understand that it's, you've got a big anniversary coming up for the study, for 30 years. Which is pretty impressive for a cohort study. I don't think uh, many other places have managed to run something for, for so long. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so. it is impressive. <laughs> where, where does that sit in terms of around the world? Because I know there are cohort studies in, in places like Boston and whatnot. How, how many years have they been running compared to you guys? <laughs> um, the, the RAIN study is quite a, a rare um, birth cohort. I think the main strength of it is the fact that we have data from before birth. So there are a lot of birth cohorts and even cohorts that are similar in terms of age of the main participants that are running for, you know, 20, 30 uh, and plus years. Uh, but a lot of those cohorts start at birth um, and then follow um, the participants. We started before birth. So we have a lot of information from the mothers during pregnancy and from the babies in the belly um, as well, especially the ultrasound measurements of the growth of the baby throughout uh, pregnancy that are quite um a big resource and something that is not common yeah so that makes it quite a unique uh set of data you've got uh considering you've got information about mothers and then the child and then you're also going into grandparents and the children of the children as well now and i guess that's one of the great things about having it run for mm. so long yeah so what we might do is just start at the beginning and and talk a little bit about how the study came about the history you know who, who were the first people behind it and then sort of work our way up to the modern day and what's going on and what the great work you guys are doing currently um, okay well the rain study began when um john professor john newnham fiona stanley con michael and lou landau uh, put in for a grant and they were successful uh, and they recruited nearly 3,000 women, so 2,900 to be specific, and pregnant women, and started following the development of their 
babies in utero and then once they were born so I think we ended up having 2,686 babies, uh, babies born mm-hmm. and uh, followed from the early days. And, and what was the original aim of that particular study or grant? So what, what was their reason for doing uh, this? It was, two, it was twofold. So one was to figure out whether uh, ultrasounds were safe and the other one was to develop a cohort that um, you could follow um, longitudinally, prospectively, into the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was back in 1989? Yeah, so the, the, the pregnant women were recruited from 89 to 91, yep. so it took around three years to, to recruit to, all the same. And I'm interested where the, the study derives its name from, RAIN. Yeah. Uh, so, well, the grant was given to the researchers from the RAIN Medical Research Foundation, and that was uh, set up from funds donated to the medical school by Mary Rain, who was um, a prominent figure back in the early 1900s. Okay. Um, owned a few properties and around Perth, and um, her husband died of um, cardiovascular disease, I think it was. Yeah, okay. and, and I think when she, she didn't have any um, uh, children, and when she passed away, she left all her state for um, medical research to to investigate the origins of disease. So um, it was quite good timing um, that um, that group of researchers uh, were thinking about you know how um, the environment before birth would influence the development of disease and health of of people throughout their lives. Um, and they came up with the project idea and were successful with the grant. Mm. And uh, so with, with regards to the, uh, how you recruited the, the first women that were involved with the study and then I'm assuming their children that followed, what was the process behind that? How did you choose or who to invite to participate? Yep, so there are um, you know, different eligibility criteria, but at the, at the time um, they, sh- they had to be pregnant, um, at least 18 weeks pregnant, um, and they um, were planning to stay in WA and not move because they were thinking of the cohort and following people um, longitudinally and also that they attended um, King, Ed- uh, King Edwards. Um, so it was the only big tertiary um, centre for, for women uh, at the time. So that was quite um, good as well because it was quite centralised. So um, that really influenced the, um, the representativeness of of the cohort so we know it's a it's a cohort that represents the characteristics of the population of western australia because at that time everyone needed to come to king eddies um to be um follow up during their pregnancy and birth of their babies mm-hmm. there you go um so there's roughly 2900 pregnant women yeah. um, in this study how many people said no i know this is a long time ago but like, it's an intense study that, that you guys were, were planning on doing. So, I, yeah, I'm curious as to see how many yep, said that's, no. Do that's we know? a good question. I'm unsure at this point. Yeah, yeah fair sure enough. <laughs> it was a long time ago. So, yeah. a bit of a side question there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Courtney, just to differentiate for people who might not be too familiar with study designs, 
the difference between a cohort study and, and other types of studies? Yeah, so so just as a, a side thing, a cohort study, basically you form a group of people and you follow them over time. Um, it's a prospective study, so you're looking forward into the future, whereas other study designs can be at one point in time and you're comparing different things or um, it can be retrospective as well. So cohort is definitely like one of the, the better studies to look at uh, doing apart from randomised control trials because you can really get an idea about what's happening in the population and real world stats. Mm. So yeah, cohort's pretty pretty good type of study. And I think one of the advantages of the RAIN study is that the people that came up with the idea knew roughly what they wanted to research, so they knew what questions yep. to ask and went and what information to gather as time went on. I think that's the real strength. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and it's testament. And we'll go into the 500-odd papers that you guys have produced. <laughs> uh, a bit Maybe later not on. all 500. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> an interesting um, uh, thing about the RAIN study as well is that, as Aggie said, it was a truthful um, aim for the study. Uh, and part of the study was to establish the cohort, and the other part that was uh, funded by an NHMRC grant was a randomised control trial. So the pregnant women were randomised into receiving one or um, multiple ultrasounds during pregnancy, and that gave us a lot of information about the safety of um, ultrasounds during pregnancy. Mm. Okay. Um, and there's obviously a lot of different part moving parts to a study like this with managing that relationship with the participants and whatnot. And uh, I know, Juliana, you're involved more with the science, the science yep. side and Aggie, you're involved more with the, the kind of operations side. How do those two things inter interact and are there any kind of challenges that you guys have to deal with on a week-to-week on a -week basis? With regard to the participants? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's always a uh, challenge to keep their interest uh, maintained. However, now they're at that age that they've made that decision for themselves and they're willing to come in and see the benefit that it brings into their own lives. Mm -hmm. So, And they are feeling more altruistic and want to contribute to the broader picture and um, other people's health and lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, however, we, all, we have a fantastic team, recruitment team, that is always on the ball and has worked with participants with our participants especially for mm -hmm. you know some staff have been working for the last 14 years with them so they get to know them um they have little tips and tricks up their sleeve mm -hmm. <laughs> um yeah so they're really very experienced and really care about our participants and i think mm -hmm. the participants can see that um when they come in and also uh, or the other interactions that we have with them. So we f have Facebook page with um, contact with them, uh, phone contact, texts, etc. Yeah. yeah, and I think as Courtney said before, it's, it's very rare to have a cohort that goes for so long. And every study like that will lose people um, throughout the time. And, and we have had, you know, people that um, stopped coming and we have people that came back and um, we have a for the last few years, we have a project going on on qualitative research, um, interviewing participants and participants that have been consistently um, coming to the follow-ups, participants that have left and not come back, and participants that have left and didn't come back, um, to, to try and figure out all those things and why people keep doing it and why people come back and, and why they leave. Um, and we've also been working on, you know, some... Um, uh, on a paper to talk about how we involve participants. I think that's a big 
part of um, the successful maintenance of, of participants. As Aggie said, we have an amazing team of people that communicate with participants very closely. Um, they have a sense of you know belonging to the RAIN study. Um, and also, for since they were teenagers, they started to be involved with the development of the assessments of the follow-ups, what, what questions were being asked, um, you know, which researchers were involved and what they were trying to find out. And, and for the last few years, we have participants involved in different structures of the study. So we have participants as board members, we have participants in all the committees, so the scientific committee, um, and, and we have a lot of involvement um, of participants that I think also help to keep them engaged and, and for them to be aware of you know, the amazing contribution that they give um, to the study and to health research overall. Mm. Do you think maybe the, the participants in this study, because they've grown up being a part of a cohort, that they might have uh, differences from the rest of the general population? Tough question. <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um, and, and we know that, you know, in, in theory, we are just observing them. Yeah. Um, we are not intervening in any way. But obviously, we are testing them. We are, um, you know, taking bloods of them when, when since they were little kids and they did some reading, um, you know, testing and development and movement and, you know, motor function, all these different things that um, might create some difference we, we we are not quite sure um, that's that's one of the limitations of research I guess um, but because we have such a big sample we, we hope that that's a, a very small effect of, mm. of testing being um, you know influencing any of the the participants I'm interested to know whether those results get shared with the individual participants when they do get blood tests done and and whatnot, because obviously that would be one big difference with the general community possibly getting that constant monitoring or regular monitoring. Uh, most of the time when the results are available, they are given to the participants straight away. Other times they need to be reviewed by a researcher or a professional doctor in that field. Um, and they might only get contacted if there's a serious problem and there's a health risk. But we have ongoing um, requests from participants, you know, oh, I remember I did this sleep study, you know, how many years ago am I able to get um, some information about it and, and we are able to provide um, results of, of things that even they've done, you know, when they were kids, mm -hmm. if they are interested in. Oh, good. And something I read about on your website is you have several generations of participants now. Um, do you just want to talk us through that? I know there's Gen Zero through to Gen 4 or 5 or 6 now. Yeah. Um, so the main participants that were the babies that were in the belly and were born and followed, um, that now are starting to turn 30 years are Generation 2 or Gen 2. That's how we call them. Um, their parents are Gen 1. And now their children are Gen 3 and their grandparents are Gen 0, right? So we have, uh, most of our data is on Gen 2. We have a lot of data on their parents on Gen 1. Um, they, they provided data for themselves and for their children um, over 18 years. And, and after um, participants, the main participants from Gen 2 co um, completed 18 years, they start providing data by themselves. Um, but when they were 26 years old, we had our first exclusive Gen 1 follow-up. So a full assessment just for the parents. And we have a lot of information um, for parents as well. And more recently, we have some sub-studies looking at um, some of the children of Gen 2, Gen 3, 
um, and they were there was some information uh, collected from them, and and currently we're looking at um, breast density uh, with Gen One and also Gen Zero. So the grandmothers have been coming, and I think we had our oldest um, grandmother um, coming to participate was 94 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's great um, to have multiple generations and particularly with Gen 2 and Gen 1, the, the main participants and their parents, um, we have very rich information on, on multiple things from genetic information to you know behaviours and general health that are also very important for now looking at intergenerational um, associations or you know what what familial relationships are involved with health and, and disease and with your with the gen 3 so the the new babies that are, that are starting um, are they all going to be in the rain study as well or are we are you guys collecting data on them as well N- not really we have a, a smaller sample of gen 3 that were invited to participate in the sub study and they were um, their information was used to be a, a control group to children with autism. Um, so we have as as a big difference is that you know Gen two we have everyone pretty much in the same age just within three years, but we have a big range of Gen three from you know two years old to ten years old. So it's a bit harder to follow them, uh, but we definitely have plans to to involve those participants um, in in projects in the future mm. yeah. yeah we have some participants that actually ring up and volunteer the information about the children that have been born or you know I'm due on this date yeah. or, so we yeah. definitely have information about you know how many and and yeah. uh, when they were born uh, but more detailed information will depend on projects that that come up mm. interesting and so you mentioned before it's around 20 just over 2600 births originally yeah. And so how many participants in total with all these different generations now? Do you have do you have an idea of how many current people there are? Yeah, for, for every follow-up, as I said, we have people that come, people that go and come back. So for every follow-up of Gen 2, we have over a 1,000 participants consistently coming. Um, and we have uh, about 1,200 um, uh, Gen 1, so the parents, uh, that have um, participated, especially on that specific follow-up that was for the parents. Um, we have about data for uh, the ongoing uh, breast density sub-study on about 400 grandmothers um, for Gen Zero. And, and as I said, we have a, sub, a small sample of about 85 Gen 3 that, were, um, per, that participated in a sub-study. Mm. And without wanting to be too morbid, um, obviously with a study like this, some of the people aren't going to make it. They're yep. going to have passed away. I'm interested to know uh, what kind of figures we're talking for your cohort and also what it's like to be attached to people, you know, who are part of the study one day and then to learn that they've passed away, you know, the next. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, uh, especially with now we engaging the Gen Zero, the grandparents, we have a lot more of the information of those th- who passed away. Um, and we have had some uh, participants in Gen 1 and Gen 2 that passed away, I won't have you know, specific numbers to tell you, uh, but definitely it is, especially for that staff, those staff members that have been working, you know, with with people for fifteen plus years. Uh, I would think there would be uh, quite a sad um, uh, news when when we know that someone passed away. Mm. 
Yeah, and I, I do know just on something less morbid, I actually have a friend who's a, a participant of the RAIN study and so I've known about this study since I was a kid because they talk about it. Um, so I know that the, the participants are really involved and they love yep. doing it and they love finding out all the information. So I feel like that connection mm. that they've got is really, really good and helps this study. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so you mentioned some of the sub-studies there and I, I had a look at the website before we came on today um, there's quite a few sub studies and areas where you're looking at different things like workplace factors health and midlife social stress how have those things come about is because they seem quite different to the original kind of purpose of the study yeah so um, every assessment or follow-up as we call them um, has a specific set of what we call core data so specific uh, assessments and questions that we always ask so things like you know height and, and weight and blood pressure and all those general health measurements uh, and also questionnaires social economical information um, so general information that we try to collect every follow-up so we have that core data set uh, throughout all the years and then for the different um, follow-ups in the different focus of follow-ups and sub-studies that would depend on um, the research groups and the funding that was obtained to to uh, complete those follow-ups. So we do have, um, you know, follow-ups that are focused on asthma and allergies or others on sleep. Um, as you said, sub-studies looking at work and work productivity and performance, um, the, the breast density sub-study, um, and, and, you know, a current follow-up that is still um, with data being collected is focusing on vision and vessels. So we have multiple different um, specific focus across the different follow-ups and they were depending on uh, the research groups and the funding um, for those. Mm. And so it sounds like, uh, do, do you guys work with the Consumer and Community Health Research Network uh, that Anne McKenzie set yeah, up? Yeah, yeah, yep, definitely. Yeah. And Anne was involved with the first um, efforts of, involve, of getting participants to to be more involved when they were about 14, 15 years old. So uh, we definitely have worked with them mm. for a long time. Because your participants really do cross that that line, don't they, from being participants as well as consumers because they're all consumers of healthcare as well. Yeah. So, so it does seem like a really unique study, the way you guys are informed and um, the way you continue to evolve your research questions and aims and yeah. whatnot. It's really interesting. And there's such a wide amount of information that you get as well, so you can really cover everything across the whole population, which is really cool. So, like, on your website, it says there's 14 key special area groups, um, and it basically covers everything that you need to know <laughs> for a person. Um, what I'm curious about is how many, how many researchers do you have on this? How many students or things like that? Because you'd have to have quite a team yeah we have um you know over 150 researchers across the the world working with the brain study resources so um yeah a lot of the the first few follow-ups were and, and even the, the current ones uh, they are mostly funded by local researchers um but because we are such a, a big resource of data that has been collected and is there for for people to um to work with we have a lot of people from everywhere um, accessing the, the data and, and completing projects. Mm. And I understand that the RAIN is now a, a joint venture between a few different institutions, is that right? Yes, yeah, so 
We have all the universities from Western Australia on board, including the Women's Infants Research Research Foundation and the Telethon Kids Institute. We also get some financial support from the Rain Medical Research Foundation. Mm. Yeah, so um, besides the Rain Medical Research Foundation, every other um, member is on our board, and uh, as well as two participants, um, which Juliana mentioned. So we've got a Generation 1 and a Generation 2 participant sitting on our board. Yeah. And how does that work, uh, uh, trying to manage the relationships between all of those universities in Western Australia? Because I'm assuming they've all got slightly different uh, aims and expectations as to what the study should do and what they want to get out of the study. Yep. Um, I think, you know, in terms of science, um, WA is quite a small um, community and there was already a lot of um, collaboration between researchers of the different universities. There, you know, researchers that have appointments at different universities at the same time. Um, and, and the RAIN study has had a history of, you know, encouraging collaboration um, from the different research groups. And because, as you said, we have information from so many different areas, um, that is a very uh, specific uh, characteristic of the RAIN study of multiple different research groups and with different focuses working together um, to answer different research questions. So um, I think uh, as anything there there are challenges of, of making sure that um, you know um, those logistic issues are, are met but um, I think there's a lot more benefits of having you know multiple institutions and multiple research groups working with such rich data. Yeah from my point of view the senior leaders from the universities have always been very supportive of the activities of the RAIN study and have really provided valuable input since the beginning of the UJV. Yeah. Very good. And that was a couple of years ago that happened, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah early 2017. Yeah. yeah, we had our first board meeting um, in June 2017. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And prior to that, were you? did you move location then or... Because I know you had a history of being at Princess Margaret originally and then... Was that right? Uh, the RAIN study was based at Telephone Kids Institute oh. until late 2014 and moved to UWA in 2015. Hmm. Yep. Excellent, which is where we are today. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we might move into um, some of the actual research now, which I think is probably of most interest to a lot of the people that are going to be listening. Um, so did you have anything you wanted to talk about particularly, Courtney? I, I do have one question, and I apologise again, it's, it's going to be a tough question. Um, we cover all of this stuff, there's, there's so much information, but is there anything in the data that you have that you wish was there? Something that might, might be missing from the participants, some information, is there anything that maybe you wish you'd collected during that original cohort? Oh, there's so much. <laughs> there's so much that we wish we could. Um, as you said, we have that core set of data that we want to uh, keep um, collecting at every time point, but um, you know, it's just not feasible to collect everything. And, and every time we, we have new researchers with new ideas and think, oh, it would be great if we had such and such collected at that age. So although we have a very broad range of data, 
uh, there's always you know specific things for different researchers interest that that we might not have <laughs> uh, that, yeah and the other thing because we're so late on board with collecting data from the grandparents um, it would have been great if it had started many years ago before many of them started to pass away yeah yeah that's mm. true yeah. yeah and I'm curious as well do, do people can people join the study at any time or do they have to have been born into the study and, and relatives of the, of people who yeah they have the to have been born because that's yes. the whole idea of you know a cohort study following that specific group of people um, through time but definitely we have you know their relatives and their their, their children and their grandparents that are um, being involved and in, and in, at sometimes we'll have you know information from the partners of Gen because you know, if they have offspring, they have the, the, the other parent and, and all of that. So we do have um, new um, participants um, coming, uh, but they are always related to the main participants that were born into the study. Mm -hmm. And it is the plan to extend the study to their children as well over time? Yeah, well, yeah. you know, our, our hope is that the brain study goes forever <laughs> and that we keep following. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that, 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 those are the hopes and, and, you know, hopefully we can, as, as time passes, the data that we collect gets um, more and more important and more valuable because we have data for so long um, and, and information from, you know, before birth um, to to really inform and answer questions that people are having now and now that the, the the main participants are in adulthood and going to middle age and, and older age uh, where you have all um, the onset of you know um, chronic diseases and all that and we'll have information from them from before birth and and be able to investigate what those exposures to things early on in life um, might have um, relationships with the, their health and, and the, the conditions that they might um, have later in life. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, is there any, are there any particular studies you wanted to talk about um, that have come out of RAIN um, you know, that you think listeners may find particularly interesting? I mean, there's, a lot, there's obviously hundreds. <laughs> yeah, or maybe yeah. your favourite one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't have favourites. I think we have more than 500 publications. Um, related to the RAIN study and I guess uh, a big part of, of those studies and that those publications are related to um, early life exposures uh, because you know, that was the, the, the main data that has been collected um, and, and a lot of questions that have been uh, asked around uh, the health research field is that looking at you know how important are the, the things that happen early in life or even before birth um, to how people um, live their lives and how they they you know their health and well-being. So we have a lot of, of uh, interesting um, findings on how exposure to things like BPA in in pregnancy from the mothers or exposure to life stress during pregnancy might influence their offspring health. So we have you know we know that um, uh, exposure to stress. Uh, during pregnancy it might be related to reproductive function of, of males in an ad, young adulthood or that that can also influence um, the child's weight and, and risk of obesity um, in childhood and adolescence. Um, we know that um, things like diet, also breastfeeding, uh, if children are breastfed for six months or more exclusively they are 
are less likely to, to be uh, overweight or obese or they are less likely to have behavioral issues uh, or have non-alcoholic fat liver disease uh, when they are young adults. So there are a lot of those um, uh, findings that are quite important and we're now looking at uh, a lot of studies that are focusing on trajectories, so patterns of how people behave or patterns of, of diet, patterns of physical activity, patterns of watching TV um, or sleep, and how those patterns, how people um, behaved throughout childhood and adolescency, um, and how that might influence different health outcomes in adulthood. So we know that children that have watched less TV during childhood and adolescence, they are less likely to be overweight or obese in adulthood. Um, and those who watch less TV have better bone density um, later in life. Um, so we have uh, a lot of different interesting um, findings. <laughs> and so that's really interesting stuff like, uh, I guess, prenatal stress exposure. So the mother is stressed and the child has you know, adverse health outcomes after they've been born. So just to explain for the listeners, how do you even measure that? How does that even happen? I mean, how can you tell that? Yep, so those questionnaires. So, um, so the pregnant women um, completed questionnaires related to life stresses. So things in life that might have happened, life transitions, that might um, create a stress. Um, and then, you know, associating that with all the, the health measurements that we have from the children and that are now um, young adults. Um, we can look at those um, associations and try to answer those questions. So I guess you could look at different levels of hormones and things like that, um, yeah. that and then how the stress from the mum in terms of that survey, how that influences different levels of hormones and things like that, as well as, I guess, I'm assuming the um, kids have gone through a stress survey as well. Yep, yep. Yeah. So we have uh, such a broad range of both questionnaire measurements and also biological measurements, so hormones like cortisol that is related to, to stress or um, different risk factors for um, heart and metabolic diseases. Um, we have the genetic um, data, so we have a lot of, of publications that are related to genetic findings. Um, so, you know, the RAIN study has been involved with um, big projects that combine data, so we call it consortiums, that, that, that um, combine data from different um, similar cohorts um, to try and find um, new genes that are related to different conditions or related to just um, health things like you know your height or or your weight or the color of your eyes or hair. Um, so there's a lot of that information that that came out of the RAIN study. Mm. And this type of research that you guys are doing can't be done purely by taking a snapshot at one point in time and that's kind of the advantage of having such a long time period where you can follow you know the mother then the children and even the grandparents yeah, yeah. definitely yeah. yeah and now with the the multiple generations we we have really important data that can look at you know questions of how much of how people live or the the health conditions that they might develop is related to the environment or related to genetic mm -hmm. um to their you know um, hereditary information from their family members. 
Did you have any studies in particular that caught your eye, Courtney? So I was looking through your publication list and it's a it's a very long list. <laughs> so I, I had to briefly skim through a number of them. But one of them that I kind of picked out that I thought was super interesting, um, its title is Early Diet Quality is Not a Primary Contributor to Adolescent Obesity. Um, and basically what it finds is exactly what the title says, that the, the quality of the diet as a child um, doesn't necessarily influence um, uh, whether they're going to be obese or not instead it's more to do with birth weight and growth rate uh, which is super interesting so uh, do you guys um, do you know which study I'm talking about yeah <laughs> as I said we have over 500 studies so yeah so I'm I'm just interested with that one um, how those kind of measurements would have happened particularly with diet quality because i know that with nutrition it can be pretty difficult to actually get a good picture of, of nutrition so do you have any information about how they did that yep so um there were different measurements used at different time points but mostly consistent with and they are just food um questionnaires so they they do um complete quite extensive and detailed food questionnaires about everything that they consume for a period of time um, and those are coded in a way that, that gives us, you know, information about the main macronutrients and micronutrients and, and all in different patterns of diet. So we have some publications related to the Western uh, diet. So diets that are high in, in fat and sugars. And we know that those are related to, you know, higher risk of cardiovascular disease and things like that. So, um, yeah, a lot of the measurement of diet was, um, from parents first reporting about their child's diet and then, um, once they, they, the Gen 2 hit 18 years old, they start um, responding about, you know, reporting their own diet. Yeah, okay. So um, I just, it's super interesting that the quality of diet isn't one of the, the main contributors to that because I would originally think that it would be rather than birth weight and, um, which was the other one I said, growth rate. Um, yep. So, which really talks about that um, whole era of research looking at early life. Um, issues that that influence later life health. Mm. Yeah, it's so important. Um, do you do you have any idea why that could be the case? Because <laughs> I have no idea. So I, like, I need to I need to reread this study and have a look at it properly and see if there's anything more. But yeah, it's a super interesting. Yeah, I area. think there are different aspects. I think we we have to consider um, uh, genetic influence on on obesity, um, and also in the environment um, influence of obesity is how that early environment might affect um, the gene expression um, and how that how that influences obesity later in life. But also thinking that obesity is related to multiple factors, not just what you eat, but how much you move and what kind of work you do, and you know um, how um, how you behave overall in life. So I think a lot of things in in health have so many factors involved that. Um, one of the great strengths of the brain study is that we have so much information that we can now have more complex um, analysis and studies that are looking at multiple different factors. We recently have um, uh, a few studies that are looking at um, artificial intelligence and, and looking at that kind of um, analysis of data and trying to you know, put a lot of data that people cannot um, work with by themselves and getting computers to Mm, to, like and machine, machine learning, learning yeah. to, to, you know, try and answer questions. Yeah. That's a really good segue into one of the studies that, I, that kind of <laughs> caught my eye, uh, which came out last year. It was by, by Reynolds et al. 
2018. I think the title is Working Longer Than 9 to 5. Are there cardiometabolic health risks for young Australian workers who report longer than 38-hour working weeks? And I think that on the surface, if you were to try and recruit a sample of workers, you know, in their 30s, you know, without all of that um, early data from the time they were born, there would be a lot of confounders that would make it very difficult to isolate the work week as the reason why they were possibly having those health outcomes. But I think one of the strengths of your study is that you have all of that information so you can control for possible genetic differences or um, early life experiences and that sort of thing. Yeah, and definitely the type of work that they do, um, you know, the type of industry that they're involved, where they're sitting eight eight hours a day or are they doing an active work and that would definitely influence, you know, different things in health. So, uh, yeah, that's a big strength of the Ring Study, having such a breadth of, of... measures and data. Mm. What was the conclusion of that study? So there were risks associated with working longer than 838 Good to hours. know. I will work less. <laughs> <laughs> it seems pretty intuitive though, doesn't it? Yeah. Like if you don't have enough recreation time and relaxation time, then I guess your stress levels and the cortisol and whatnot that you were talking about before might be elevated. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting how wide the range of topics are that your study touches, you know, things like work weeks and um, there was another study here on uh, looking at autistic-like behaviours and whether perinatal exposure to exogenous oxytocin can influence that. Um, I'm assuming that's during um, during childbirth. Yeah. 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 So we have a lot of um, information that can help with that. Obviously, we have a, uh, a cohort of the general population, uh, but. Because we have collected measures of, for example, autistic traits, uh, we know it's a spectrum. Uh, people might have autistic traits and not necessarily be diagnosed as um, having autism. Um, so there's a lot of, of other um, information that we can associate with that um, and, and really try and figure out. And that can help um, you know, uh, identify what are risk factors or what are things that are associated with um, the development of aut- autism, even if our population or our cohort is from the general population, definitely the, the information that we have is is a lot about what is expected in the general population, but that can help um, uh, inform, you know, uh, on how different conditions develop and, and mm. how they progress. And I think the one of the real strengths of your study, of the RAIN study overall, is that you do get to speak to people one-on-one, whereas there's a lot of researchers out there who get a big... Um, a lot of health records, you know, hundreds of thousands, even millions over time. But you don't know what that individual person is going through in life that's going to impact on how many times they're in hospital or the ED. I think that's something that's really unique to the RAIN study. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I definitely wish. So I'm, I'm one of those people that has a very big data set with no contact to any of the participants. <laughs> and I'd, like, I wish that I'd be able to have some of the data that you guys have um, because I'd be able to answer so many more questions and it'd be you could control for things and it'd be yeah it'd be really really good mm. yeah so one one final study that i wanted to raise was the a study that was done into breastfeeding and whether that protected against the middle ear infection um, that's commonly called otitis media um, and it basically said here that there was protective benefit of being predominantly breastfed in i think up to six months yeah. years of years of or six months of age um, but that didn't last much past a certain period of time. Um, and I was interested, were you involved in, in any of that work or did you liaise with the, the researchers? Who, who no, no, I have been 
haven't been involved with with those particular um, researchers or the, that study. But um, as I mentioned, we have a lot of, of, of our studies and previous publications are related to that earlier exposure in life and not only protective effect on um, middle ear infections, but also development of asthma and allergies uh, in childhood. And, um, and yeah, those are very interesting findings of, yes, it is. it can have a protective effect uh, up to a certain age, but that doesn't, um, that is not maintained throughout um, adolescence and young adult and adult years. Um, and, and that is also something that with the longitudinal data that we have collected, we can then further explore of, well, if it's not maintained, what are other things that are influencing um, the risk of uh, having middle ear infections or the risk of having asthma or allergies later in life that are not related to the protective factors or the immunity that comes from um, being breastfed um, mm. earlier in life. Yeah, and that's really interesting and, and useful information because we, we did a podcast a few weeks ago on prevention and that's almost like a form of prevention, knowing that breastfeeding your child can help protect against a lot of these illnesses happening. It's almost like you're protecting them from the time they're born and preventing illnesses from the time they're born. <laughs> yeah, yeah, super, super interesting. Um, it also, again, the whole peanut allergy thing that's going on at the moment, like we know that breastfeeding now is involved in that and also early exposure as a baby. And, and um, so that, that information about early life and pregnancy and birth and things like that can really help our population and prevent some things that are really important in our society at the moment. Mm. So I'm just interested to get a, uh, kind of your reflections as employees of the study because um, from what I understand, you both have worked in the university world for a little while in different roles and whatnot over time. How does the RAIN study compare to some of the other things you guys have done? Um, the RAIN study is definitely a more complex area that I've been involved in um, pretty much because I'm in the nitty-gritty of the research uh, or involved more with the development of the uh, a new study so developing the budgeting just listening in on all the conversations that the researchers um, are involved in and trying to identify where what direction they want to go in and what the possibilities are so that's all very interesting we had one study where we were collecting what the research assistants were collecting fecal samples from the participants so it's it was interesting to hear how they were planning on going about it <laughs> so, um, so it's definitely um, more interesting sort of from the ground up uh, before I was working mostly in finance in a couple of different areas at UWA and more involved in the budgeting side and um, uh, at a school level and not so much at the um, grassroots level. Mm -hmm. And as an early career researcher myself, I've, you know, I've, I've been involved with the RAIN study as a scientific officer for about a year and a half to two years now. Um, and as a researcher, I was always involved in a lot smaller scale um, projects uh, or my individual research and you know the, the, the project I did for my PhD and 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 so on so uh, it was very um, it's it's incredible to be part of, of a study that is 
so big and successful and that has this amount of, of information as as you said Courtney having a, a huge amount of information without knowing the participants uh, leaves you with a lot of questions but you know knowing the the amount of data that we have and that we have access to these participants and that you have the potential to follow them for many many years um, more uh, it's incredible and having um, you know assisting researchers with the, the different projects and the different areas of research is always very very interesting um, to know what's going on and, and what people are focusing on and what what are the the discoveries that they can um, do with with our data hmm. so maybe just get an idea of how people can get involved and uh, what the process is whether they're Oh, I guess participants can't really get involved as such. But. Yeah, I don't think we can get any more participants. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I'm sure there's a way for potential researchers to get involved or whether people want to know inf more information. So so what's a way for general community to find out more or researchers to get involved? Uh, we have a website, brainstudy.org.au. That's a great starting point and um, you can contact us on the phone number on there. And we have a really great team that will be able to help with anything and any questions that they have uh, and if there are any participants out there that were involved in the RAIN study before and have for some reason uh, been unable to continue they are more than welcome to come back and what we collect from them going forward would still be very valuable for the RAIN study. So. Yeah, so I guess if you were born between 1989 and 1991 and ask your parents if you were involved <laughs> and maybe you can get back into it. <laughs> yep, yeah, definitely. And researchers, uh, as Aggie said, we have the, the website with a lot of information for the general uh, public. We have all of our publications there and we try to provide lay summaries for, for these publications for the general community to um, understand um, the, the complex research that, that have come from um, the range set of resources. But, uh, we also have specific parts of the website for researchers uh, explaining how to get involved if they would like to have access to the data that we hold, how um, they can contact us and what the process is and how long it takes. So definitely using the website and the email and um, addresses there. And Facebook. They, <laughs> they will definitely find us. We'll, we'll put all those details in the show notes when we put the show on. So, excellent. All right, well, I'd like to thank Aggie and Juliana both for your time today. It's been excellent chatting yes, to you. thank you so much for, for allowing us to talk to you about this study today. It's been amazing. Oh, yeah. Thanks Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks Thanks for much. coming out and having a look at our facility here. <laughs> excellent. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for listening to our chat with uh, Juliana and Aggie from the RAIN study. We thought it was a super interesting conversation, and I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Uh, if you guys have any questions or maybe any future podcast ideas for us, please let us know. There's two ways you can contact us at the moment, and that is on Twitter with our Twitter handle at healthmeanswhat and also our email, which is meaningofhealthatoutlook.com. So hopefully we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Thank you.